Well, we're going to continue our study in the book of Nehemiah. Now, last week we finished two-thirds of chapter 8. That section showed us that the Israelites had kind of settled into their homes, but the first thing that God wanted them to do when they got settled was to come and be together to hear God's word. They had their material needs met, but now they needed to have their spiritual needs met. They listened to God's word being read for at least five hours. And the priests were mingling in the crowd to make sure that the people heard and understood what was being taught. So after the five hours, the people celebrated hearing God's word by what? Having a feast. So now we come to chapter 8, verse 13, if you would turn there with me. Nehemiah 8, 13. And last week we mentioned that this particular month was a great starting point. It was the Jewish New Year. The Day of Atonement happens in this month. The Feast of Tabernacles happens in this month. So it's a... It was a good starting point. But I also said that whatever day you commit your life to Christ is a good starting point. Don't wait for something special to happen to do it. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Not next week, not next month, but today. So if this is the day for you, then this is the day that God wants you to start with him. So Nehemiah 8.2 tells us they met on New Year's Day. Nehemiah 2 says, So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. So the first day's over. They had their feast. And now we come to the very next day. And verse 13 says, On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. So this is the first day they were there for five hours or so. Second day they come back for more of the same. How many of you have ever been to a, a, like an old-time revival? And if you've been to those, you know that it runs from Sunday either to Wednesday or the following Sunday or longer if it's, if it's, taken, if it's really taken off. And you come and it used to be at night and it'd be three, four, five hours of revival. And there'd be times of prayer. We used to have prayer troughs or prayer lines. People walk through the prayer lines. It happened every day. And that's the, that was like a revival for us. These folks in Israel were having a revival. They came back the next night, man, to hear more of God's word. When you are revived, you, you just can't get enough. You just you soak it in like a sponge. It's like when you're first saved. You want to know as much as you can know as fast as you can know it. And these guys, they were hungry. They wanted to hear God's word. They came back the next day to, to hear what Ezra was saying again because I'm, I'm imagining that for five hours, they may or may not have gotten through the whole first five books of the Bible. So they have this revival. What happens after a revival? What happens, what should happen after every service? Action. James 1.22 says, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So now they had spent the first day listening to God's word, second day listening to God's word, now it was time to actually do what God's word was telling them. And what was the next thing they needed to do? Verse 14 says, they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles, palms, and shade trees to make booths, quote, as it's written. So they read this thing, 
they realize that the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booze, that, that happens usually between the 15th and 21st of the seventh month. Now they're on the second day. So they had basically less than two weeks to go gather these sticks and build these little tabernacles. They didn't have a whole lot of time to get ready. And not only that, they had to get word out to everybody. Everybody had to attend this thing. So they had less than two weeks to do it. Notice that God is telling, it wasn't just the leaders or the heads of the families to do it. God wanted everyone to be involved in this. Everyone is responsible for doing what God tells us to do. How many understand that? God's word's written to everybody. It's not just for certain people. I remember when a buddy of mine was going through preacher's school with us, and he, was, he, was, he came out of Catholic faith, and he told me, he goes, I, I went to my priest one day when I was searching, and I asked him, you know, can I, can I get a Bible? I want to read it for myself. And the guy told him, he says, no, your job is to listen to what we tell you. We'll study it, and we'll tell you what it says. How many know that's not how God's word works? God's word is meant to be studied by everybody. Everyone's involved in that. You don't just listen to someone telling you what it says and not study it for yourself. So they're responsible for getting these shelters together. What was the Feast of Tabernacles? If they're going to do it, what did it signify? Well, they're going to build these shelters and live in these, these little shacks for a week. And they were usually set up on the roofs of their houses or in the courtyards. And we're going to see later that it, they were everywhere. These, these little tabernacles were everything, everywhere. And they, signal, they signified three things. This festival signified three things. Looking back, looking around, and looking ahead. So when you look back, when they look back, they were supposed to be reminded of the 40 years of wandering in the desert by their ancestors. When the people were homeless, they were struggling, everything, they didn't have things handed to them. They had to remember what their ancestors went through, went through to get where they are today. Now, as believers in the New Testament, we're not obligated to celebrate these feasts, but it's a good idea to look at what they stand for, what's the meaning behind them. So we're going to look at those three situations, looking back, looking around, looking ahead. So when we look back, look back as a person, where you are now, look back at your life. We're going to look back as a family, and then we're going to look back as a nation. So personally, when you look back, now it's 2021, where are you in your life right now? Are you better off, well, this is kind of a weird thing. Are you better off than you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if you're that old? Or are you better off than your parents? Are you better off than your grandparents? Are you better off than your great-grandparents? I would think that today we would say that we are better off than our parents or our grandparents, our great-grandparents. We are, for the most part, healthier. We are, for the most part, I wrote down wealthier. I think we have more material things than we've ever had. Now, I wrote down smarter, but I'm not sure that's true. The point is, there were hardships and struggles in our ancestors' past that brought us personally to where we are today. For the Jews, they're supposed to remember what their ancestors had to endure, partly because of disobedience, but also to understand where they are today and why they're there. They're not supposed to forget the struggles that people before them went through. How many of us do you think could live 
the way we are now, could we live 100 years ago? Could we live 200 years ago? Could we live 70 years ago? Some of you have lived 70 years ago. I saw a, a meme the other day that said, 18-year-olds in 1944 stormed Normandy Beach unto almost certain death. 18-year-olds today seek safe spaces to not have their feelings hurt. <laughs> That's just a generation. My dad was in World War II, and I, I like studying that stuff. And I, when I look back, I look at the, the struggles and the situations that those folks of that era had to live through. And I don't think that we today could live through that type of thing because we've gotten all soft. They were supposed to remember that life hasn't always been easy for them. Look at what your ancestors had to go through. And they still served me. Now you are here. It's time to remember that. We have to remember that today, we live today because of the sacrifices that other generations have made before us. The Jews needed to, rem to remember that and appreciate that, and we do too. What our ancestors endured, so we don't have to. So we looked at it personally. Let's look back at your family. What are some benefits that we have as families that our ancestors didn't have? Just think about the conveniences we have today and the things they didn't have. And you know what? They survived, right? I wrote this down this morning. You know there was actually a time when there were no cell phones. <laughs> there was actually a time in our life there were no computers. There was actually a time when we had actually one telephone in our house. It was a wired phone. And if you had two phones, you were rich. And we had three TV channels that you couldn't get unless you stood with them with a piece of aluminum foil. And they signed off at midnight. And before that, there was actually a time where there were no TVs. It was just radio. And then before that, no radio. So the things we have today, I would think that we are, now, they may be detrimental, all these things, but technologically, benefits we have that they didn't have in the past. Are we healthier? The advances we've had in medicine that we didn't even have 50, 60 years ago. What are things that were very common but aren't anymore? Diphtheria, smallpox, polio, malaria, tetanus, yellow fever, scarlet fever. We should be grateful to God that we are living when we're living. We could have lived back then. We wouldn't have survived back then, but we Knowing what we know now, if we lived back then, would, would we have made it? I like time travel. I'm the first guy to want to time travel. If they, if they make it, I'm, in, I'm volunteering to do that. But obviously we can't do that. There's no time travel. We, we glamorize previous generations and times, but in reality, the way, we have, way we're used to now, could we live then? I'm thinking we would get tired of that pretty quickly. So we are blessed where we are today. We look around. We're looking back. Now we look back nationally as a nation. Now I think this is kind of where we're going off the rails a little bit in this country. We, we ha are forgetting 
what this country's been through to get where we are today. We see history being rewritten or erased before our eyes. I mean, you know, I gotta tell you, when I help my grandkids with their homework, first the math, I don't get, you know, there's a right way to do it and then the way they're teaching today. It, it's like, it, and the same thing is for the history books. How many remember when they used to have civics? There used to be a class, civics. They got rid of that and now it's social studies. They're changing our history because they don't like it. It's something that they don't like. Well, you know, it's a history. You learn from it, you grow from it. How many wouldn't want to go back and change something in your life? Change a choice or decision, something you did? We'd all like to do that. We'd like to go back as a country and change things, but you know what, we're not. We can't go back and change them, but what we can do is we can learn from it. God wanted the Israelites to learn from their parents' mistake. Look, they wandered for 40 years because they were disobedient. You don't want to do that. Remember them. We want to be able to learn from it, be reminded of it so that we don't do it again. What's the saying? Those who fail to remember history are doomed to repeat it. If you don't remember your past mistakes, you're going to do them again. I heard the comedian Jeff Allen. How many know who Jeff Allen is? Christian comedian. He says, he says, doing stupid things should hurt. If you fall by riding a bike, you're going to learn not to do that again. It should be painful. He was doing that with the helmets and the bubble wrap that kids got to wear now to ride bikes. None of which that we wore, and I would think most people think we're okay, but we survived. It's, it's easy to learn from something or not learn from something. Our job is to learn from them so we don't make the same mistakes. And the purpose for the Israelites and for us is we need to remember all that God has done to bring us to where we are today. If you look, at, and we had a discussion yesterday with someone about faith in, in the country. You look at the original documents, look at the state charters, all those things referenced Christianity. They all referenced being a believer in some aspect. If we don't look back at that, we are going to lose it, and we're, and we're losing it right now. The purpose of history is so we can see what God has done, see where we have made mistakes, and don't do it again. So we've looked back, now we're gonna look around. The Jews were to look at the harvest that God had given them and to be grateful for what God is giving them at that moment. Deuteronomy 8.10 says, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. They need to be thankful to God for what he's given them and not think they've done it on their own. Now we look back at how God's brought us to where we are today we need to look around and see the blessings that God has given us right now. Ask yourself, what do you have that God didn't give you? Everything we have, the Bible says, James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. What do we have that God didn't give you? You have a job, God gave you the ability to have a job, God gave you the ability to work. God gave you health. God gave you a place to stay. Everything we have, 
whether we acknowledge it or not, God has given us. So we look back, we look around, now we gotta look ahead. The Jews were to look forward to the kingdom that God had promised to them. Zechariah 14.4 says, on that day, second coming, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley, with half of the mountains moving north, half moving south. Verse nine, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name the only name. How many are looking forward to that day? It's, a, it's coming. But we have hope. This, this life is not all there is. We look forward to what God has promised to those who love him. The order you get, you realize how short life is. Right? And I hate to spoil it for you, but everyone's going to die. I don't know if you know that or not, but everyone's going to die. But what lies beyond the grave is what we're looking forward to. And the order you get, the closer that comes, and the more you have hope for what God has for you. The Jews were supposed to look ahead. In spite of what may be going on around them, they were looking forward to what God was going to do for them. And we need to be looking forward to what God has for us. John 14, 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may be where I am also. God's building your mansion. God's building your room. How many like to do house renovations? I like some of it, not a lot of it. But I watch those shows, you know. These guys come in and they just turn this, this shack into a mansion. And I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of their talent and their ability. And it takes, what, a week to do all this stuff for them or a month. I'm looking forward to the day where I can walk into my finished home that God's preparing for me. No idea what it's going to be like, but if God's building it, I'm ready for it. And that's, you know, that's what I'm looking forward to. And so the stuff that happens here I may not like it, but I'm looking forward to what's coming. The Jews were supposed to look forward to what God was going to do them. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. The feast should encourage us to look back to where God brought us from, look at what God is blessing us with today, and be excited for the hope we have for tomorrow. So verse 16 goes on, they celebrate the feast. And says, so the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards and the courts of the house of God and in this square by the water gate and one by the gate of Ephraim. Doing the will of God doesn't come by chance. It requires work, right? God could have said, poof, there's your, there's your shacks. He said, go out and you do it. These guys, they didn't sit around just saying, hey, amen, man, preach it, preach it, preach it. They had to get up. The revival was there. They had to get up, leave the revival, and start working. Start doing what they had heard being preached. It's one thing to get revved up at a sermon or a conference, but if it doesn't challenge you to do something different, if it doesn't challenge you to change something, if it doesn't challenge you to do something for God, then we've missed the point in the entire conference or sermon, whatever you're listening to. 
Verse 17 says, the whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. We mentioned before, God's word is applicable to everyone. Everyone is required to be a part of what God's doing. We're all called to be obedient. We're all called to not just listen, but we're called to respond. We're called to action. I used to, when I used to visit nursing homes, and I was talking to a lady who actually was blind, and she was near the end of her life, and I, I, I was talking to her, and she said that she used to do all these things in church and teach and everything. She says, but now my ministry is prayer. I can't go anywhere. I can't see anything, but man, I can pray. I said, man, pray for me. I want someone like that praying for me. So your ministry is never over. I heard an evangelist say once, and I, I heard this, and I was like, ooh. He says, you can retire from a job, a secular job, but you can't retire from ministry. So that's a calling. I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> he says, you're never gonna hear me say that I'm retired. He says, it may change, but the only retirement God has is one retirement plan, and that's when you're dead. So I guess I'm never retiring. Darn, I wish I wouldn't listen to that one. We're called to be obedient. We're called to action. When we hear God's word, we're called to react to it. Verse 17 says, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this, and their joy was very great. And if we're not careful, we'll just skip over that one section in the verse. It says they didn't celebrate it like this. Like what? Well, they celebrate. It doesn't mean they never celebrated it because they did between Joshua and then they had celebrated this feast. Second Chronicles 8.12 says, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings to the Lord according to the daily requirements for offerings commanded by Moses for Sabbaths, new moons, and the three annual feasts, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of Weeks, Feast of Tabernacles. Ezra 3.4, then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for the day. So they had sacrificed and they have celebrated this feast in the past. But the difference lies in the two words like this. Like what? Well, apparently in years gone by, not everyone participated in it. Not everyone did it out of joy. They did it because it was mandated. The law told them they had to do it, so I guess I got to suck it up and I got to do it. They didn't get any joy out of it. They just did it because they were just doing what was required. But this time, everyone was involved and they were very joyful, the word says. And in verse 17, says, and their joy was very great. How easy is it to go through the emotions of being a Christian? You go to church, you read, you pray, you do all the stuff that we think Christians should do. But you don't have joy. Why not? Why not? Part of the celebration that caused the joy involved sending food and gifts to those who were needy. Back at verse 10 it says, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. Have a great time. And send some to those who have nothing prepared. Joy comes from not only hearing God's word, but doing God's word. Helping and sharing the blessings of God with others. In other words, 
they were ministering to the needs of other people. They weren't just taken in, they were given out. And the giving out is what caused them to have the great joy. How many of us don't really have the joy of the Lord sometimes? Do we sometimes rely on a pain-free life to have joy? If my life is going great and I have no struggles, then I have joy. But the minute that something goes wrong, joy's gone. What you're actually describing is happiness. Happiness depends on happenings, what's happening in your life. Joy, the Bible says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. If, you're, if your joy, your happiness is based on what's happening to you, your joy is going to be like this. Up, down, up, down, up, down. It's going to be random and inconsistent. The feast was meant not only for enjoyment alone, but for enrichment and encouragement. What did Nehemiah tell them a few verses ago? We said it. Verse 10 says, this day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy we get from the world is short-lived. And when it goes, what do we have? You're left with even greater weakness, greater discouragement. It's like a sugar high. If you're, if you're joyful because of great things happening in your life, and that's the only time you're joyful, the minute those things are pulled out from under you, you're gonna crash and burn. Our joy needs to come from God and what God calls us to do. We receive the joy of the Lord and we are able to minister to other people. I wrote down here, if you only receive and receive and receive and never use what God's given you for others, you're never gonna have the joy of the Lord. Ask anyone who's doing any ministry where they get their joy from. Yeah, it's tough, it's work, hard at times. You may not even feel like doing it sometimes. But to the people you minister, you get joy from seeing how God's word is using you to touch their life. God's not doing it by himself. He's using you. You're actually an instrument of God Almighty to do something that he wants you to do. You know, how many of us would love to see writing on the wall? I would love to hear an audible voice from God telling me to do this. I would like to see Jesus standing in front of me telling me plainly what to do. But that doesn't happen. But what does happen is God fills you with his word and he uses you to do the writing on the wall. He uses you to bless other people. He uses you to stand in front of somebody else as Jesus and tell them. And when you do that, God gives you the strength and that strength is your joy. When you see what God is using you for and you see the lives of the people that you've ministered to, whether it's teaching, whatever it is, you get joy. My first Sunday school class, there were a bunch of seventh and eighth graders. And that was rough. But they were all pretty good kids. And for the most part, I, I've kept track of them. They're now late 30s. Family, a lot of them are in ministry. I, I don't take credit for that, but I knew that I was in their class and I, maybe I was a part of that. To, to bring them to where they are as adulthood. You get joy because you have now tangible evidence that God is using you. 
And this revival lasted for a week. Nehemiah 8.18. Day after day, from the first to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Can you imagine having a revival service every night for a week, and after every one, there's a celebration? I'm there. Tell me where it is. I'm coming. But we're going to get to that in a minute. Notice the, the reason for the revival, the impetus for the revival. People were hearing and responding from their heart for the first time in a long time to the word of God. For years, the Israelites had simply gone through the motions of worshiping God. They did the feast. They did what was required, but they did it out of habit, not out of their heart of love for God. The offerings they, they did meant nothing. In fact, in Ezra, back in Ezra 3, 4, we read this verse, and I like the way it was phrased. The end of the verse says, they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. That seems really matter of fact. Yeah, we did the number of offerings that God requires. We made sure we had the right number. We didn't get anything out of it, but we made sure the right number was there. But it didn't change their life. But now they were in exile for 70 years. God's bringing them back to their hometown. They had a fresh beginning. They recognized what they lost out on, on God's blessing for the 70 years they were gone. They realized what their ancestors lost out on for disobeying. And now they're back. Look, we want to obey. We want the blessings of God. We want everything. So, Lord, we want to celebrate this from our heart. We want your blessings. And I think right now, the church in America is ripe for that type of revival. Because I think for years, we've been coasting in the blessings of God. We have all these material things. And sometimes we go through the motions. But has it really changed who we are? Has it changed our life? I, like, I told the, the teens today that your testimony, when you talk to someone about your testimony, you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to know really anything about the Bible. You tell them what God did for you. I said, the, the man born blind, you know, they, they called him before the priest, and they said, hey, tell us about this Jesus. He said, look, all I know is I was blind, now I see, period. That's all I know. When you talk to someone about your testimony, you tell them what God did for you, that's all I know. And I'm telling you, you are excited when you tell people that, and when they hear it, if they're your friend, they're going to probably believe you. Or they'll think you're crazy. But your testimony should be exuberant, and I'm not sure that we are. So the Israelites have been going through the motions. God sent them in exile for 70 years to get their attention. God got their attention. They come back. Right now, there's a lot of things going on in this world that should be getting our attention. Maybe we might lose our blessings as Israel did. I'll give you one small example of that. How many have heard of the Equality Act? If you haven't heard of it, it's bad. Now, the Assemblies of God usually doesn't, you know, they say out of politics, they don't mention much about it. But Doug Clay the other day tweeted and Facebooked, this, this is his quote. 
This represents a single greatest threat to religious liberty in his lifetime. Actually, he put out a response to that. I'm just going to read a couple things. This is how we should respond to what's going on around us. Not just this, but everything. We must unconditionally accept God's word as our final authority. How many agree with that? That means whatever God's word says is true regardless of what anybody else might say or any kind of argument they may give against it. Two, which might be more difficult, it might be more difficult for me, it's essential that we maintain a Christ-like love for all people. And the third thing, exercise your opportunity as an American citizen to contact your legislators and tell them how you feel about it. I'm going to give you an example of what, what this is doing actually right now. The city of Anchorage attempted to use one of these laws to enforce a woman's shelter to allow men who identify as female to sleep just three feet away from women who have survived sex trafficking, rape, and domestic violence. A little closer to home, a Pennsylvania high school quietly adopted an, quote, open door policy permitting boys who identify as female to use the girls' locker rooms and restrooms. A Georgia school district using this policy allowed a male student who identified as, quote, gender fluid to use the girls' restrooms leading to the sexual assault of a five-year-old. Pastor Esteban and his church sought to open a woman's shelter for survivors of domestic violence. Massachusetts officials told them that men who identify as female must be able to use the same changing rooms, restrooms, and living facilities as these vulnerable women. State of Illinois targeted adoption and foster providers, forcing them to, to violate their commitment to placing children in homes with a married mom and dad. The state's action resulted in more than 2,000 children being displaced because it effectively prevented valuable providers like Catholic Charities from serving children, moms, and their families. Government officials have repeatedly used these laws to target and punish small business owners. The Alliance Defense Defending Freedom says ultimately the Equality Act can be used to require doctors, doctors, businesses, taxpayers to support and participate in abortion. Bad stuff. The church, like Nehemiah's people, need to have a tabernacle experience. Not that we live in tents, but maybe we need to listen to God's word and respond in action to it. What's the action we can do? What, what does God call every believer to do? Prayer. Our nation, our families need God's divine intervention and that comes from prayer. I wrote down knee-scraping, tear-producing prayer. Second Chronicles 7.14, we all know it. If my people who are called by my name, that's us, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from our wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. He's talking to the church. Actually, he's talking to Israel, but we apply that right now. We all know that verse, but do we know the verse that starts this? 
Verse 13, God speaking, when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or I command locusts to devour the land, or I send a plague among my people, if my people humble themselves and pray. Who starts it? God. God needed to get the Israelites' attention. And so he says, when I do all these things to you, and they're bad, that's when you better take notice and start praying and get right. I think God needs to get our attention. We need revival. Like these folks needed revival. But how many know revival doesn't start corporately? Revival starts individually. When we pray for revival, our first prayer should be revive me. Revive me. And then when I'm revived and you're revived and you're revived, guess what happens? Then revival breaks out. We're trying to do that now. With that, with the prayer once a month that we're going to start with, it may wind up being more than that. But we are praying that God intervenes because there is nothing else we can do to stop what's happening. And I've said before, maybe God is going to get our attention so that many people in the world come to know Christ. And so we're praying 21 and 21 so that people get saved, that people come to know Christ. Because if, even if the nation's healed and people don't get saved, it's worthless. Because ultimately, people come, need to come to know Christ. And God is getting their attention, but I think he's trying to get our attention. That we need to be praying and serious about praying for people to come to know Christ. Because if, if indeed these are the very last days, because we've heard it before, the truth is the next prophetic thing to happen is the rapture of the church. Nothing else God needs to do before the rapture. It's coming. It could happen today. But once we are gone from this, if you've been here on Wednesday night, you, you've heard this teaching before. Once the church is removed from society, what's going to happen? All hell is going to break loose in this world because the spirit of God is going to be gone. The church is gone. The enemy is going to have full reign. And it will bring disaster among the people that are left. And if they're our family and they're our friends and they're left, Chances aren't good they're going to get saved. So we need to be praying about them now. If we're serious about asking for God's blessing and we're serious about him saving people, healing what's going on in our country, it's going to need all of us praying together. For the Israelites, God was telling them, hey, look, the casual days of worship are over. The days where you did these feasts and didn't care about it, they're done. You need to be about worshiping me from your heart and doing what God tells you to do because you want to do it. You want to see revival. And that's what they were experiencing. And the revival encouraged them, and they were excited about it. That's the one thing about revival. You get excited about what God's doing, and you want nothing more than to jump in and do it. You want to be a part of that. Years ago, we were at Brownsville, and... You, you want to go because you want to be a part of what God's doing. But that's not the end of it. The mistake we made sometimes is trying to duplicate what was happening there, here. You're supposed to take what you've got out there 
and do God's work. Not, not cause another revival, but do what you've been revived to do. And I think this is a perfect time for the church in general to be revived. We need to be excited about what God's gonna do. We need to be also, that's the word I'm looking for, we need to realize the urgency of what we do. Because if we're not here, and none of us is guaranteed in the morning, who else is gonna witness the people we know? Who else is gonna draw people to Christ? You may be the only person that God sends to somebody else. Your family, your friends, whatever. You may be the, the person that God wants to use. But if, we don't, if we're not doing it, if we're just sitting back waiting for God to send somebody else, they're not gonna get saved and we're gonna miss it. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come back up here. And actually, I'm not gonna do resurrecting, I'm gonna do grazing the gardens. There's a on the fly. The song, it's new to us, new to you, I'm sure. I think some of you have heard it. I know Judy was loving it. My wife was loving it. She's not here, but she's loving it. The whole gist of the song was God is the only one who can change, totally transform something. Whether that's our country or whether it's the people we're praying for, God is the only one that can change them. So we, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna ask, as they sing, if you would come up, this line in the front here, and just start worshiping God, and praying for the people in your life that need to know Christ. If you hit the music there. I searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. Nothing, nothing, 
Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Lord. You are the one who changes everything, Lord. You turn death into life. You turn graves into gardens. You split the sea, you made it a highway, Lord. You do everything. There's nothing too hard for you. Nothing is too hard for you. Lord, you have called us as your church to be the foundation of this world. And your word says the church, the, church, the gates of hell will not prevail against your church. They will assault us. They will beat us. They will do what they can. But your church will not fail. Your church will continue on. Long after we're gone, it continues on. So, Lord, I pray that while we're here, while we're your church, I pray that you would revive each one of us individually, that our hearts would be attuned to you, that we wake up every morning feeling the spirit of revival in us, Lord, that, God, we want nothing more than to hear your word, to do your word, to be excited about what you're doing, to want to fulfill the Great Commission, Lord, to teach and to train, to lead people to Christ, Lord. We sang that there's nothing better than you, nothing better than you. When we talk to people about Christ, we have to realize there is nothing better than you. Before we came to know you, Lord, we were obstinate. We were struggling. We didn't want to know anything about it, but people persevered with us. And we realize now and we are thankful that they did that, that there really is nothing better than you. So, Lord, when we have these divine appointments, when we pray for those folks to be saved, that revival begins in us, we want people to experience the same joy, the same excitement that we experienced, the same life-changing transformation that Jesus gives. We want them to experience it. We know what they're like now because we were like that. Help us to have the, the words to say, the excitement the revival attitude to share with them, to minister to them, to love them in the name of Jesus. Lord, we don't want to condemn anybody. 
We don't condemn anybody that's doing this. We want people to come to know you, Christ. We want people to see the love of Christ. We want them to see the true church, the true Jesus. Lord, you, you kept the harlot with you. You ministered to her, the blind, the leper. You were with all of them. You wanted them to come to know you as much as everybody else. So, Lord, our attitude should be one of like Christ Jesus, that we love them into the kingdom. We share the love of God. We do what we can to prevent evil from progressing. But, Father, we know that ultimately it's in your hands. So we pray, we pray, we pray, we seek your face, and we believe that there is power in prayer. Your word says it's powerful and effective. So, Father, we pray for those on our list who we are praying for to come to know you. In the name of Jesus, I, break, I pray that you would break down any barrier in their life. Remove the blinders from their eyes in the name of Jesus. Let the Spirit of God draw them, Lord. Your word says no one comes unless you draw them, so, Father, draw them. Let the word of God that they may have heard in their past come back. Your word does not return void. It accomplishes what it was meant to do. Continue to beat that word into them, Lord. I pray that you would send people to them. Send circumstances their way, Lord. Whatever it takes, I pray that they would see the goodness of God that draws them to repentance, Lord. We want to see the power of God in action. <clears throat> we know what's going on in the world now, Lord. There's nothing we can do about it except pray. So, Lord, we pray and we commit that situation to you. We pray that you would come against this new law and whatever they put in our path. But, Lord, more than that, we pray that you would use this evil, turn it around for good for those who love God. So we're praying that all this stuff going on will bring people to Christ. You will give us opportunity. You will give us the ability. And you will fill this church with people who are crying out for the love and the need of God. Help us to be ready for them, Lord. Help us to have that heart that we love them and encourage them. They, they're blinded like we were blinded. And they need to know the truth. So help us to do that to them. Help us to show them physically the love of Christ. We don't jump on them. We don't condemn them. We don't beat them up. We want to show them Jesus. We want to show them that God loves them where they are, wants to transform them from where they are to where we are. Help them to understand, Lord. And help us to be able to witness and, and live the life that draws people to you, Jesus. Revive us, O oh Lord. Revive us. Let every day be a revival, Lord. We pray for your anointing and your spirit to fill us. That, God, we have your wisdom. We have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of God to direct us every single day, Lord. So that everything we do, every place we go, we are directed by your spirit. And people see the difference in us. They want to see Jesus in us. Not the world. They want to see other things. They want to see Jesus in us. And I pray that we would have that exuding from every part of our body. The language we say, the things we do, the places we go, let them see Jesus. And let them see something that draws them in. Let our testimony, let our testimony be one that is attractive to the people that are searching, that need you. They may want nothing to do with you. But we know that, Lord, deep inside, you're drawing them, and they need you. So, Lord, I pray that you would save people. Use this time of prayer. Use our weekly fasting and prayer and our, and our monthly gathering together to pray and believe the move of God. Your word says you do nothing except by prayer. So, Lord, I pray that, God, you would answer these prayers. Keep us on our knees before you, Lord. Keep us trusting you, needing you every day. Lord, we can't save anyone. We can't change anything. But God, we can do what you've called us to do. We can plant the seed. We can water the seed. We can, we can 
try to behave well in our society, but ultimately, Lord, it's you who do the work. You are the one who gives the harvest. You are the one that changes the hearts of the king. You control their thoughts and actions. You control. Your word says you raise up and you put down people in positions of authority. So, Lord, we pray that, God, you would do all the things that you want to do to bring revival to me personally, this church, this community, and this world, Lord. Let people see Christ before the rapture, Lord. One last time before you return, I pray that we'd experience revival and that many people come to know you through it. Lord, let people hear the word of God. Let no one be left behind. Let every opportunity we have come to fruition. Let, let us not enter into the kingdom of heaven saying we missed one person. But God, give us the ability, the opportunity, the words to say, divine appointments, or whatever it takes, Lord, help us to draw people to Jesus. Help us not to be discouraged by what we see, but help us to be encouraged that, God, you're giving people the opportunity to be saved. You're getting their attention. You're getting our attention so that we continue to trust you. We're no longer going through the motions, but, Lord, these are the last days, and we are praying in the name of Jesus. We're praying for the power of God to be seen. We're praying for the anointing and the revival to begin in our hearts. And then people see that and people come to know you. Father, we thank you, thank you, thank you for reviving us. And we pray this revival doesn't stop here, Lord, but it begins here. And it goes through us, with us for the rest of this week. When we come back on Wednesday, we're revived again. We go back out in the world. We come back on Sunday, we're revived again to go back out in the world. Build that revival up in us, Lord. Build it up in us. Excite us, Lord. Let us see the power of God working. Let us see souls coming to kingdom. Let us see healings. Let us see miracles, Lord. Lord, before that rapture, Lord, before the last call, I pray that, God, you would give us one final opportunity to win those to Christ, to be an influence in this world, and get people ready for the return of our Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, Jesus, hallelujah, 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 Jesus, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, we thank you, we thank you. Your revival only happens because of your spirit within us. We do what we can do, but Lord, ultimately, you revive us. So we thank you for reviving us, Lord. We thank you for allowing us to want to be revived. Thank you for the joy that you're giving us, Lord. Not because we're hearing it, but because we're doing it. We want the joy of the Lord to be our strength. As we work for your kingdom, as we work for you, Lord, that joy is coming from the strength you put in us to enable us to do it more and more and more. And the more we do it, the more joy we have. Let people see that joy in us hallelujah father we thank you we thank you thank you for your word we thank you for saving us the lord we're here someone took time with us and we're thankful we're thankful that you were long suffering because a lot of us took a long time to come to know you and there's a lot of people out there that need that same long suffering so lord i pray that you would use us remind us lord what we were like, how obstinate, difficult we were, and help us to have patience with those who were just like us. And let them see the love of Christ in, in everything we do. 
We're your servants, Lord. We're your, we're your servants. We're your tools here. And one of the words of the song says, while I'm alive, I still have work to do. So Lord, as long as we're breathing, there's something for us to do. So I pray that you would just open those doors for us, Lord. Revive us. Get us excited about the things of God. And then let us see what you're doing in response to our faith and prayers. Lord, I commit each person here to you. I commit, if you're watching at home, I commit you to them, to the Lord as well. Equip us, use us, and allow us to go out singing in joy. Father, we commit ourselves to you. Nowhere else we can go, Lord. Your word says you have the words of eternal life. So we can't, no place else to go. And we're thankful that we have the words of life. So we commit ourselves to you and to your word. And we do it in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And all of God's people shouted in victory. Amen. 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 Give the Lord a praise offering. Hallelujah. Reading through Joshua, what did they do before the walls fell? They shouted. They shouted, the walls fell. So we're going we're gonna to shout in victory of what God's doing. Amen.